One of our windows facing the back, and our kids loved watching the squirrels fight over getting inside through the gutters that they had eaten through the soffits. What happens to a house when it's empty from the people departing is that it begins to revert back to being just like the woods. It looks like a house on the outside, but on the inside, it's just like the forest. Well, what happens to a church when God is no longer there? It reverts back to paganism. Although it might have some external trappings of a true church, and although it might use some of the vocabulary of a true church, when God is not there, it simply becomes another wicked form of pagan idolatry. Tonight we're going to be talking about the Protestant Reformation, but because that is such an extensive topic that covered roughly a century of some of the greatest and most complex and most important events in all of history, we're just going to zone in on one particular person, and not even the entirety of that person's life. Uh, We're going to be talking tonight about Martin Luther. You'll see him up here behind me. Good-looking fellow. That's from the later stages of his life, if that's anything like what he actually appeared to be. We know that's from the later sessions of his life because early on, as we'll see, he liked to starve himself, and so he was actually quite a thin man early on. But if you know anything about Martin Luther, you know that he was actually a larger-than-life figure in many ways that God used to shape and transform the world for the glory of God. So even when looking at Martin Luther, we're only going to scratch the surface of his story tonight. So what we're going to do is we are going to look at this most significant figure in the most significant events in the church in the last 1,600 years, and we are going to look at what he said was the most significant thing about the Protestant Reformation. This evening, I'm going to teach you two Latin phrases. My assumption is that many of you will know both of them, so for you it will just serve as a reminder. The first of them is what Martin Luther referred to as the chief article from which all other doctrines flow. Concerning the Reformation, Luther called this the chief matter. In other words, it is the entire point of division between the Catholic Church and Protestants. John Calvin later looked at this doctrine and called it the main hinge upon which salvation turns. Perhaps you know what doctrine I'm referring to. It's called the doctrine of sola fide, or faith alone. Faith alone is a reference to the biblical fact that we are not saved by works of any kind. We are justified or made righteous by actively trusting in Jesus that he paid all of our debt for us. This was central to the teaching of the early church. This was the teaching of the authors of the scripture, the apostles. And for hundreds of years afterwards, if you read the early church fathers, this is exactly what they taught. This is exactly what they believed for centuries. But then the church began to devolve. And the idea that salvation was by faith alone began to be replaced with a litany of satanic substitutes. So what we are going to do tonight is walk through the brief overview of Martin Luther's life, and we are going to see how God used this great reformer to rediscover the truth of sola fide. Martin Luther was born in a small mining town in Germany in 18, 1483. rather. Now, if you think mining is a fun job, you are crazy. Mining is not a fun job. No one does it because it's exciting or the delight of their life. They do it because they need to. Well, if you think mining today is difficult, imagine being a miner before electric lights and before elevators. Luther's father did not want Martin Luther to grow up and be a miner. So instead, 
he did everything possible to get Martin Luther out of that career path and into a college so that he could become a lawyer. Because, believe it or not, it seems to be true that just about in all eras of history, lawyers, well, they get both job and financial security. So, as a young man, he was studying at a place called Erfurt College, and this caused him to develop a really deep sense of legal justice that would play a part in his life for the rest of his life. But on July 14, 1505, when he was just 21 years old, Martin Luther was traveling from his home to college back and forth, and he was on his way back to college, and as he was traveling on the road by himself, there was a massive storm that erupted. Now, most of us probably think it's kind of silly to be afraid of storms. In fact, one time I was counseling a couple because uh, there was a woman who was terrified to go to work when it was storming. But most of us think that's silly because we are inside when it's storming. We are inside of a house or a building or a car. We are not outside in the middle of the wilderness in Germany when a terrible storm arises. And he was terrified that he was going to die. And not only because of the rain, but because when he began to try to take shelter, a, a massive lightning bolt shattered the ground near him, and he was certain that the next one was coming right for him. And so he was terrified. He cried out to the sky, and he begged for help, and he promised that if only he would be saved from the storm, then he would commit his life to a life of religion and become a monk. But it's important to note, he did not cry out to the Lord. He didn't ask God for anything. He didn't even think that was the right course of action. Instead, he did exactly what his family had always done. He cried out to St. Anne, who was the patron saint of minors. It was probably a common focus in his community and in his household. So when he needed help, that's who he went to. So he grabbed onto a massive granite stone and he looked to the heavens and he screamed, Help me, Saint Anne, and if you do, I will become a monk. And he did just that. He went back home and he gave away all of his law books. He gave away even the cloak that they gave him as he was studying and he be became an Augustinian monk. Now, it's interesting, he became an Augustinian probably because it was right there. It was accessible to him. It was the closest course of action to becoming a monk. But the Augustinians were notably the most strict and rigid of the monasteries. So if you want to compare it, they are like the Pharisees of the monastic movement. And that's where he went. And he immediately beca became consumed with the fact that if he would have died in that storm, he knew he would be under the judgment of God. He knew that he had not done anything to eliminate his sin, and he began to be completely obsessed with doing whatever it took to justify himself before God. And the more he learned from the Bible, the more he realized he was condemned by it. So he would go into the confessional booth every day, and he would confess his sins for hours at a time. In fact, he writes that he would go for five or six hours a day, and he would wear out the priests that were listening to him, and they told him, please stop. Please stop. We don't want to hear you anymore. Wow. But not only that, he would fast for days on end. He believed that if he made himself uncomfortable, maybe God would forgive him. Or he even tried at one point fasting from sleep. And if you've ever tried that, you know it doesn't do good things to your mind. Then he began moving into the direction of flogging himself with a, weather lit, uh, a leather whip until his back was completely raw. This is called... Uh, self-flagellation, and I know that at the end, if there's a time for question, this is what Ed will make a joke about. He had become more and more aware of the immense burden of sin that lay on him. This man was miserable, because not only was he confused about how to get saved, he was convinced that he could not get saved. 
He was convinced that he could not pay it off. He was convinced that each and every time he tried to dig himself out, he was actually digging himself further in. He would later look back at this time on his life and he would describe it like this. He said, I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, I murmured greatly because I was angry with God. When he read the scriptures, he did not see a God that he wanted to love or honor or follow. He saw a God that he hated because God has standards that he knew he could never reach. But after six years of living in that misery, six years of constantly being reminded that he could not save himself, finally, he came to a point where he was allowed an opportunity to go on a pilgrimage to Rome. Now remember, for Luther... Rome was the head of the church. That's where the Pope is. And so in his mind, he had built this place up to be an incredibly holy city filled with the most righteous people on earth. And then when he got there, he was disturbed to see the sin in that city. And he saw that it was just as rampant in Rome as it was everywhere else in the world. But his excitement was not diminished because there was one particular site that he was dreaming about going to. It's a place called the Scala Sancta. And we have a picture of that here behind me. Uh, This is a modern picture The Catholic Church has not changed since the times of Martin Luther. Not that much. And so the Scala Sancta is 25 steps. You'll see that these are modern people there. It's a place in Rome, right outside of the Church of John the uh, Lateran. And this church in particular was exactly where Luther wanted to go. I've actually been to these stairs. I've been there on multiple occasions. The Roman Catholic Church claims that these steps were in the headquarters of Pilate, and when Jesus was tried, that he walked up and down those stairs. So because he walked up and down them, of course, now they are holy, and now they can provide benefits to those who go up and down them. And so when you go there, you can see that everybody there is on their hands and knees, and everybody that's going up is praying. If you could look closely, uh, you would see that most of them have rosary beads in their hand, and each time they go up, they will kiss a stair. Well, why do they do that? Well, during the time of Martin Luther, they were told that you were able in these 25 steps to take 25 years of sin off of your record. For Martin Luther, that sounded really good. So he went up each one slowly, kissing every step. And with his maniacal fear of God's wrath in the back of his mind, he was praying fervently and fearfully. And then when he finally reached the top, he looked back down at the crowd of others that were coming up behind him, and he began to panic. And he wasn't sure if it worked. How could he know that it actually took away his sin? So he panicked and he cried out, who knows if it's true? Luther would later claim that this was the most disappointing moment of his entire life. He truly thought that he would feel different somehow after going up these stairs. He truly thought he would feel as though his sin had been removed. At least when you vote, you get a sticker. He got to the top of the stairs and was like, there's no evidence. Now, when I went, when I went there the last several times, they have a guest book now that you can sign. And um, I would always put in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. But the important thing to know is that at this point, there was something in the back of his mind that began to constantly bother him. How can I know if it's true? How can I know that things that the Catholic Church is telling me to do is actually taking away my sin? Now, before returning to Germany, there's one more thing we should take note of that Luther saw while he was in Rome. While he was there, he saw the early stages of the groundwork for a building called St. Peter's Basilica. If you've ever been to Rome, you've probably seen it. It looks just like that. One of the nicest, fanciest, most beautiful buildings ever constructed. 
And this building was in the process of being built as a replacement for the first St. Peter's Basilica that was built by Constantine. So they had already torn it down, there were ruins there, and they were preparing to build it back up. But building projects like this one are incredibly expensive. So the church was looking for ways to raise funds. When Luther returned to Germany, one of the things that began to get under his skin was that the Roman Catholic Church kept sending salesmen to Germany to sell something called indulgences so they could raise money for that building. Now, what you could do is you could buy indulgences for dead relatives in order to free them from the imaginary holding cell that the Roman Catholic Church had invented called purgatory. In Catholic doctrine, purgatory is the necessary place that you go to burn off all of the leftover sin that you didn't deal with in life before you died. So indulgences basically function within the Catholic Church as a get-out-of-purgatory-free card. And who wouldn't want to help their dead relatives get into heaven? But if you think this is in the past, it's definitely not. In fact, as recent as 2013, you could get an indulgence for doing nothing but following the Pope on Twitter. And you think I'm joking, but I'm certainly not. One particular salesman came to Germany and really got under Martin Luther's skin. His name was Johann Tetzel. He was the epitome of a snake oil salesman. He was known for making up a lot of clever little jingles that would stick in people's minds and remind them to give just a little bit more money to the church. And the church loved him because he was raking in the dough. And his most famous rhyme was, quote, When the money in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Now, some people even began buying indulgences for themselves, so that they could sin with impunity. Now, this prompted Martin Luther to begin writing what we now call the 95 Theses. In in fact, that little song that I just mentioned to you, that little jingle, well, that was mentioned directly in Article 27 of the 95 Theses. It says, They preach human folly who pretend that as soon as money in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Everyone knew that song. I used to know a couple. They were excellent musicians, and... They really didn't do a whole lot of musical work. In fact, one year they sold a jingle for an ad on television and it raised them enough money that they literally did not work the rest of the year. It was like a 16-second clip of music and they were paid enough to survive the entire year without doing any other labor. Why do people get paid for things like that? Why Why is that so valuable? Because you know what happens. Cars for kids get stuck in your head and you can't get it out. And it's there for the rest of your life. This man came up with brilliant schemes to remind people nonstop, God wants your money. And Luther began writing directly in opposition to that. And here's just a few other of of the articles that are mentioned in the 95 Theses. Article 32, those who suppose that on account of their letters of indulgence they are sure of salvation will surely be eternally damned along with their teachers. In other words, if you think that these are going to get you out of hell, you're going to hell. Number 45, Christians should be taught that whoever sees a person in need and instead of helping him uses money for an indulgence, obtains not an an indulgence of the Pope, but actually obtains the displeasure of God. Article 82, why does the Pope not empty purgatory for the sake of holy love. After all, he will release countless souls for the sake of sordid money contributed for the building of a cathedral. In other words, if the Pope actually has the ability just to let people out of purgatory whenever he wants, why doesn't he just do it 
immediately and for everyone. Why does he need to take money from people in exchange? Now, I want to stress that at this time, Martin Luther was not trying to break from the Roman Catholic Church. He was a Catholic, and he viewed himself to be a Catholic, but he started to have his eyes open to some of the surface-level problems that were growing out of a rotten core of Catholic paganism. In fact, he didn't even plan for this to be a confrontational attack on anyone. You see, on October 31st, 1517, he took this list of 95 things and he nailed it to the door of the church at Wittenberg, which was a common practice for those people who were educated. It was a place called the All Saints Bulletin Board. It's a place where people would put things to be studied because back then you didn't have the easy accessibility of a copy machine, so it was expensive to make copies. So what they would do is they would put it there, let everyone read it, and then come back and debate it in the near future. However... This document that he had written in Latin, Latin which was only read by the elites, some person of unknown identity took it down, translated it into German, and then used the relatively new invention of the printing press to reproduce and spread them throughout the entire countryside. And this is when many people began to have their eyes open to the idea that the church was actually lying to them and scamming them. But the 95 Theses really wasn't a theological argument about justification. It was certainly against indulgences, but it wasn't asking the question yet about salvation by faith. In fact, I would contend that I don't believe Luther was even saved at that point. Consider the last of the 95 Theses. It says, And so let them set their trust on entering heaven through many tribulations, rather than some false security and peace, speaking of indulgences. In other words, these tribulations that he's talking about were self-justification. It angered him that he viewed these ideas of indulgences as a con artist's way of avoiding all the suffering that he was putting himself through. But then, about a year later, Luther was studying Romans 1, and he got stuck on verse 17. He just could not get past it. What does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? And finally, as he read these words, it came to him. It says, in, For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous or the just shall live by faith. He read these words, and finally, the clouds cleared, and he understood. That particular line, the righteous or the just shall live by faith, rang in his mind over and over until the Lord opened his understanding. And I personally believe this is the moment when he actually came to saving faith because this is the first time in his life that he understood he could approach God not on the basis of his own works, but on the basis of Christ alone through faith. Now, Luther began to read the Bible in an entirely new light. He said, quote, a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. This man knew the Bible. He had studied the Bible. He was intelligent. He had memorized large portions of the Bible. He knew it in multiple languages, this man. Yet he says that when his eyes were opened, it's like an entirely new face of the scripture showed itself to me. I know many people who are Christians today who grew up in churches and who knew the word in their mind, but it meant nothing to them. They didn't understand it. And then when the Lord redeemed them and he gave them life, then it was like they had a new understanding and everything began to click into place. It seems to me that is what happened to him at this point. So he, just, he had determined at this point to get this information to the people. And he saw what happened with the 
95 different articles that he had placed on the door, and he saw how well that had gotten out to the public just by going to a printing press, so he decided to bypass the All Saints Bulletin Board, and he just began printing pamphlet after pamphlet after pamphlet, explaining exactly what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, 8, and 9, that you are saved uh, by grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. He wrote about this nonstop. And if you're not saved by works then that means that the treasury of merit and the prayers of the saints and church attendance and indulgences and giving to the poor and owning relics and going on pilgrimages and pardoning pardons from the Pope and going to confession and doing penance and praying particular prayers or burning off your extra sin in purgatory have no value. And he began writing about that. The blood of Jesus is sufficient to cover every sin. And the way that it is applied is through the gift of faith, not all these externalities. In particular, Luther's writing heavily opposed the idea that a priest or the Pope himself had any authority to forgive sin. That God is the offended party, therefore God alone can forgive. And this is when the Pope began to take notice. Remember, this is in Germany where Luther is writing. The Pope is way down in Italy, and there's a whole mountain range in between them, and took a time for that um, news to reach the Pope that nobody was uh, that people had started to listen to Martin Luther and did not like the Pope because of what was happening. So the Pope began to take notice, and in 1520, a year and a half after Luther's conversion, the Pope sent an edict called a papal bull to shut down Luther's writing. Now, to be clear, the Pope didn't actually write it. It was written by a group of 40 cardinals and bishops, and they wrote this, and they had the Pope sign it while he was on vacation. He actually didn't even read it, according to some documents. But in it, the, le- the letter speaks against Martin Luther as, quote, a wild boar who is destroying the vineyard of the Lord, who had bestowed jurisdiction over it to Peter and his successors. In other words, this is a garden that God gave to Peter and all the popes after him, and now there's some wild boar. We have to go take care of it. Now, what do you do with a wild boar? You kill it. That's what you do in Europe when a wild boar comes into your garden. Well, when the day came for Martin Luther's books to be burned, Instead of taking his stockpile of pamphlets out and lighting them on fire in the public square, instead, he drew a large crowd around him and he burned the papal bull in its place. It was a way of declaring that the writing of the Pope, not his own writings, were the ones that needed to be destroyed. And this is a highly significant moment because this was the day, sometime in October of uh, 1520, that Martin Luther officially rejected papal authority. In other words, this is much more of a grounding moment of the Reformation than the 95 Theses. Now, of course, the Roman Catholic Church could not allow some German monk to keep cutting into their wealth and influence, so they determined to have him tried. Now, I'm not going to get into the details, but there was a bunch of different places they wanted to have it, and eventually it was determined this has to take place in Germany according to the law. So it was decided they would have a council in a place called Worms, spelled like worms to the wonderful delight of every child. The first day of the trial, they pressed Luther significantly on a number of his writings. And the main reason was they didn't actually think that this guy was smart enough to write these things. They thought that he was some kind of a ghostwriter and that that other people were ghostwriting using his name and his position so that he would be the one that ends up burned on the stake, not them. So when it finally came to the point, he declared, yes, these are all my writings. Well, then they said, if these are your writings, you are required to either recant or you're going to be excommunicated as a heretic 
and you will be deemed an enemy of the state, which basically gave the Roman Catholic Church the right to execute him. Uh, they gave anyone within the Roman Catholic Church the right to execute him without legal consequences. In other words, the priests themselves would not do it, but they wouldn't stop anyone who wanted to do it. And if anybody wanted to kill Martin Luther and take all of his things, they would just look on with no care in the world. It was a way for them to have plausible deniability in his death while encouraging any unofficial party to kill him. Now remember, this is a real person that we're talking about. Martin Luther was a man just like the people in this room. He liked to be alive, just like the people in this room. In fact, he was standing there at my age, 37 years old, when he stood before that council. He was given time to think before coming back out and speak, and then during that time, it says that he, he said that he entered into a time of agony and deep torment and prayer as he was convinced that the devil himself was trying to convince him to walk out there and to recant all of these things. But by the grace of God, Luther walked back out before the magistrates, and when everyone in the room expected him to say, you're right, I was wrong, the Pope can say whatever he wants, I'll shut my mouth. But he didn't say that. He said instead, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures, or by evident reason, for I can believe neither Pope nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Thus I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me. Amen. Now, the rest of Martin Luther's story is fascinating. He didn't end up getting killed because pretty much as soon as he got out of there, he got kidnapped by a prince and then stuck in a tower where he translated the Bible into German, and then that resulted in a peasant revolt. I mean, there's a whole bunch of incredible things that take place in the life of Martin Luther. He is one of the most fascinating figures in all of history. And there are many good things to say about him, and there are many errors that we could point out in his theology and in his life. But the key thing that God did through Luther was to bring to light the principle of the gospel that salvation, true and genuine salvation, comes through faith alone. Having covered ever so briefly, with very little detail, the life of Luther, what I want to do now in closing is simply ask and answer three questions. First, how should this affect your relationship with the Roman Catholic Church today? Well, the Roman Catholic Church is not just an alternative option for people seeking God and expecting to find him. They do worship at the Catholic Church. The problem is they just worship everything except the God of the Bible. It is a false religion that undermines everything that makes the gospel good news. I can't tell you how many times I have been told something like this by members of churches like yours and mine, where people will say something like this. You know, I have a friend. And, you know, they're, they're Catholic, they go to a Catholic church, but I know that they're really a Christian. I know that they're really a Christian. Well, how do you know that? Let me ask you, would you say the same thing if somebody were to go into a Hindu temple and light a candle to a golden statue of Vishnu? Would you say, you know, that person, they say that they are a Hindu, but I know that they really are a Christian. Why do you think that if someone follows into a pagan practice of worship in a Roman Catholic church where they literally claim to re-crucify the Lord of glory. Why would anyone think that someone who continues on in that practice is actually a follower of the Lord? 
A true believer should be disturbed by the idolatry and the blasphemy that surrounds them on every side in the practice of the Catholic Church. And if somebody truly is saved while they are in the Catholic Church, when they hear the truth of the gospel, they will come out. Knowing that Catholicism is a false religion based around works-based faith should change the way that you view people in that pagan culture. It should cause you to be much more fervent in evangelizing them. It should cause you to think carefully about attending baptism or other religious events for family members who subscribe to that kind of pagan theology. And it should cause you to see Roman Catholic people as a mission field, people who are trapped, just like Luther, prior to his conversion, who are doing everything imaginable that the church tells them to do in order to wipe away sins, but all in vain. When speaking to Roman Catholics who tell me that they view themselves as Christians, this happens all the time, well, I'm a Christian, I just I go to the Catholic Church. I've started telling them basically this. I will say to them, you know, there are many things that I disagree with the Roman Catholic Church about. Many, many things. Uh, but there is one area of agreement. You see, in the Council of Trent, which was the Catholic response to the Roman or to the uh, Protestant Reformation, in session six of the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church specifically said that anyone who believes in sola fide, faith alone, must be anathema, which means damned to hell. In other words, the Roman Catholic Church agrees with me that we are different religions and we, had, we should not pretend otherwise. So when you see somebody who is Roman Catholic, love them by sharing the gospel with them. Love them by praying for them. Love them by graciously seeking to draw them out of paganism and into genuine worship that you can only have by faith in the one true and living God who saves sinners. Here's the second question I'd like to ask and answer. How should this affect your church, North Shore Baptist Church? At the outset, we asked a question. What happens to a church when God is no longer there? Well, it reverts back to paganism. This is what happened when the people of the Catholic Church rejected the truth of the Scripture and began to fill the church with all sorts of pagan practices. But that's not exclusive to the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, all around us, we are watching formerly faithful denominations bow to the tides of culture and adopt, adopt abominable practices, things like ordaining homosexuals or transgender pastors. Where does that come from? Why is that happening? How does a church get there? It happens because somewhere along the line, the people reject the one true and living God. And just like an empty house reverts to a forest, those churches, those denominations, they are reverting to paganism. Now, do you realize that many of the churches that were most affected by the First Great Awakening, the preaching of, of Whitfield and Wesley and Jonathan Edwards, do you know that within one or two generations, the majority of those churches became Unitarian? meaning they rejected the Trinity entirely, rejecting the faith. At the outset, I told you that I was going to leave you with two Latin phrases, sola fide being the first. The second is this, semper reformanda, which simply means always reforming. The worst thing that could happen to North Shore Baptist Church is not that it would cease to exist. It's that it would grow and that it would have vibrant groups of people gathering here every single week but that the gospel would be lost and that the Lord would not be worshipped. Semper reformanda, always reforming. As a church, dedicate yourself to always ensuring that the gospel is of first importance in your life and in your practice and in your preaching and in your singing and in all that you do here. 
Don't waver, don't fade, and don't give in to the whims of culture and the ways of doctrinal fads. By the grace of God, hold fast to the truth, semper reformanda, always be reforming. And lastly, and very briefly, how should this affect you individually? Well, to be clear, this was a history lesson, but more so it's supposed to be a worship lesson. Just like Luther, when he received that freedom from the burden of his sin, that weight that he carried, when it was gone and it was, it was clear to him it had been atoned for by the blood of Christ, that he could do nothing to ever add to the sacrifice of Jesus, that caused him to worship for the rest of his life. When you see that you are saved by faith alone and not by any works of your hands, it should cause you to worship. Just like Paul, you should rejoice that God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with, with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing to the cross. You're free by faith, by trusting in Christ, by believing that his work is effective for you. You are free, and that is good news. Let's pray. Father God, we do love you, and we thank you that we are able to come in by faith alone. For Lord, if it was not by faith, there would be no other access. For there is certainly no work of our hands that could ever produce one ounce of righteousness. So Lord, we thank you that by your grace you have redeemed us. And Lord, we thank you for history. We thank you for the work of great men throughout history, great men and women who have been transformed by the gospel we thank you for Martin Luther and the way that you transformed him, upheld him, and used him to spark a great reformation that we, even down to this day, are able to worship in spirit and in truth without all the pagan trappings. So, Lord, we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.